Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1, where we challenge the assumptions of our current society to resist oppression and investigate alternative ways of living for a world based on justice, solidarity, and sustainability. Gary and Kindanami, welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1 FM. It's your local community radio station, and my name's Andy. I will be hanging out with you for the next hour. I'm coming to you today from Nanda country on the west coast of Australia, slowly making my way back up towards Brisbane, but acknowledging traditional owners all over this wide land. And what we do on this show is talk about current affairs. We try to get a a different view on them and especially try to talk about how can we make the world better. And today's show is a topic that I have not talked about very much um, on the show. So I'm excited to delve into a little bit. It's going to be a bit dense maybe at times, a bit theoretical. But today on the show... We are going to be chatting to Emily McCaven, who is an academic in uh, media studies, but who's very interested in technology um, and media and gender and how these things play out in our life. Uh, And I think this is a topic that we do not cover nearly as much as we should. Um, I think that... Um, Technology of all kinds has an immense effect on our lives individually and our society, the way it goes, and it is likely to keep increasing. You hear talk of the metaverse and things like this, these big tech companies, they have all these big plans and they try to sell it as this will be really good, but really they link it to things already existing, so you kind of have to go with them. Um, And we don't get much of a say of... What do we want our um, social media technology, information technology to look like? Um, And yet, these things have incredible influence. So many of us are glued to our smartphones and our multiple social media accounts or streaming accounts or online shopping or um, online apps of all kinds. Um, And so I think it's very worth asking questions about what it's doing to us Um, about where the power is and how we can maybe claim some of it back to adjust technology in a way that is beneficial for all of humanity, not just a few people who control big companies. Um, About the effects on uh, mental health, on how we understand ourselves, identity, on the environment, of course, as we are... um, living in an environmental crisis, but you wouldn't know it from the hype endlessly around new uh, technology, all of which, of course, has quite a high carbon footprint. 
Um, and so there, there's lots of big questions, and uh, I sometimes delve into these writing-wise. Um, I did write a blog uh, last week uh, following the news that a Google employee claims the algorithm has become sentient. Um, I don't believe that, that it's sentient, but I believe they have too much power already, and we should be... Uh, asking real questions about these algorithms and what they do. I don't often um, uh, cross-promote my blog, but you can read that one if you want to read some of my thoughts about the uh, dangers of algorithmic technology on andypayne.wordpress.com. But back to the paradigm shift, what we're doing today, we'll be exploring these uh, ideas through the lens of, in particular, an academic article that was written can you believe it, 35 years ago, the Cyborg Manifesto by Donna Haraway that talked about the way um, the borders between human and machine are becoming ever more porous. And I guess what that means in terms of what are the negative effects, but also she talks about what could be some of the ways that this has turned to our advantage for liberation. Um, it was written in a, a socialist academic journal, and so... It was written with a view to, you know, how do we work these things to the betterment of all humankind? And so, yeah, we'll delve into that with Emily McCaven, and I hope you do enjoy it. I think, again, it's a really important topic, and it's good to sometimes get a bit theoretical and try to open up our, our brains to understanding things at a different level. Let's get into it. Hi, my name is uh, Emily McCaven. Dr. McKeven, I suppose. Um, I'm an academic at Monash. I teach in the Media Studies Department. And my research, my writing, um, is about the intersection between religion, culture, and the environment. And, and I'm interested in, you know, the ways that the natural and the cultural are interwoven. Mm. Well, the reason I've got you on the show is that a few years ago, actually, um, I read an article that you wrote in Overland Magazine. It was about The Matrix, The Cyborg Manifesto, and transhumanism. Um, <laughs> a lot of our listeners won't know what any of those things are other than The Matrix, the classic science fiction movie, but we're not going to talk about The Matrix at all on the show today, I don't think. Um, but I thought your article was very good at bringing up something that I think a lot about but don't see a lot of people writing about, at least in the popular um, press, about technology and gender and identity and how these things weave together. So uh, I guess to start off with, um, do you want to briefly talk about, I guess, the ideas that inspired the article? Sure. Um I was asked to, you know, write the the article because The Matrix was, you know, celebrating 20 years. But I was really trying to get at what does it actually mean to fully reckon with the culture we live in today. And what I mean by that is the ways in which, you know, the idea of the self, the idea of even the world, our landscape, our social structures, our bodies, our minds are all kind of, you know, hybrids, um, integrating non-human elements. And so thinking about the ways that 
um, media and information technology construct social reality. But specifically thinking about this in terms of the material consequences to our bodies, um, to the way that we inhabit the world. Mm, it's a, a timely topic uh, in our technologically mediated world, um, and we'll, I'm looking forward to delving more into it. Uh, but I guess start off with a few definitions. One is um, transhumanism. Um, it's often conflated with another term, posthumanism. They don't mean exactly the same thing, but I guess for the purpose of this interview, can you explain to us what we're talking about in these concepts? Sure. So the idea of transhumanism is it's a kind of philosophical um, movement, but it has a kind of practical impetus. And the idea is that we should overcome the limits of the human, you know, our bodily and mental uh, limitations through the use of technology. And so transhumanism is things like, you know, Elon Musk's Neuralink, the, the, the goal for Neuralink is to integrate the internet into our very brains to, in, in a sense, make the brain part of the network. Um, so transhumanism is this kind of really profound interweaving between the technological and the biological. Um, posthumanism is slightly different. Posthumanism is... Well, I mean, again, it's a philosophical movement, but it's one that rejects um, humanism or thinks that we've moved past humanism. So the in, you know the enlightenment derived ideas of the human, uh, which were imagined to be universal, but post-human theorists say, um, well, the idea of the human always concealed a white, a male, a heterosexual bias. And so posthumanists are looking to move past the model of the human and think about, well, what does it mean if none of us, or if some of us have never been human? So do we therefore need to um, discard the idea of humanism from our culture or move past it? Um, so the relationship between transhumanism and posthumanism, um, I guess a transhumanist would say, you know, you should supplement your body, um, use every kind of technology um, that you can. So there's, you know, like a kind of desire to modify the self, whereas a posthumanist would say, we have always already been modified, you know, right from... Um, the kind of beginnings of uh, social organisation. The Timothy Morton talks about the agrologistics, agro the modification of the environment over the last ten thousand years. So posthumanism would say, well, actually, we need to reckon with what has already happened. Um, and 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 I guess I would kind of situate myself more in the posthuman, the posthuman rather than transhuman. Um, I'm not sure we necessarily should be, you know, using technologies like Neuralink, but we should reckon uh, fully with the implications of the ways in which we have modified environments and bodies and selves. Mm. Okay, now the other uh, reference point, I guess, for your article was 
a lengthy academic essay written in the 1980s, but one that seems to take on new relevance all the time, uh, Donna Haraway's The Cyborg Manifesto. It's, um, it's a dense article, and um, <laughs> it's one of those things, it's a bit like reading uh, The Situationists or um, Michel Foucault or something. You're like, I think it's saying really good stuff if I can work out exactly what it's saying. Um, but do you want to explain to us, I mean, what's The Cyborg Manifesto about? Sure. So, so Donna Haraway is an American feminist writer, um, inspired by Marxism, but, you know, trained in the philosophy of science. And so she wrote this article in the 1980s called, like you say, The, the Cyborg Manifesto. And in that article, she says, even in the 1980s, that there are what she calls leaky distinctions between the human and the animal and the human and the machine. In other words, that, and this this inspired later post-human writers, the idea of the human has become, you know, the cyborg is is, is a metaphor for the, the, the coming together of the human and the machine, you know. It's not just a robot. A robot is entirely artificial. A cyborg uses inanimate and animate it uses, you know, uh, technology and biology and so so Haraway says like basically we're all kind of becoming cyborgs um, and if this was true when she wrote this in the mid 80s it is even more so true today um, you know like you can't go anywhere in public space without seeing somebody looking at their phone right you know like there is a profound relationship between technology and um, and the human and so, so Haraway's really kind of looking ahead and thinking about the way that, um, you know, technology and information, you know, change the way that we think of ourselves as people. Donna Haraway is a, a key figure in, I guess, postmodernist theory as well. You know, she coined the phrase um, situated knowledge, which is a kind of key idea of postmodernism. Um, and so the Cyborg Manifesto is a postmodernist text, but it's also about technology, as you say, but also she's a feminist writer. It's very much about gender, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, for Haraway, one of the things about the emergence of, you know, the information economy is that feminized labor is exploited. And, you know, we can think about this in terms of, you know, workers in Apple factories or something, you know, the way that that labour is um, particularly related to a gender inequality. So Haraway's really thinking about that and, um, um, yeah, really thinking about the way that um, there are gender dynamics that are built into new forms of technologies. And, you know, we can see this when we think about, you know, things like um, AIs like Siri, which, you know, are gendered female. Um, Of course, you know, an AI doesn't have a sex or a gender, but they're gendered female, you know, semiotically um, in terms of their meanings because we have ideas that, you know, women are supposed to be helpers to, you know, serve. So there's kind of a um, gendered dynamic that... Uh, Haraway sees emerging 
in the new information economy. So Donna Haraway in 1985 sees a world where... uh, human and machine are changing to become ever more integrated Uh, she then applies this to I guess um, the possibilities of a a post-human worldview and indeed a a post-human reality right where we are Mm. technologically augmented and the the break with the the norms of gender which either had been determined by biology or by humanist philosophy um, Mm. And that seems to me to have been a, a very prescient observation, um, given the changes in, I guess, philosophy and, and the practice of how gender's lived out in the years since it was written. Yeah, um, sure. If, you know, if Haraway talks about the leaky distinction between the human and the machinic, there's, there's a leaky distinction between male and female, you know, over the last 40 years, right? So... Um, you know, with the the emergence of new forms of uh, gendered identity and gendered embodiment. Um, So that's absolutely um, something she anticipated better than anyone. In that way, I guess if we can see that living out, I mean, do you think we're currently living in a a kind of transhuman um, reality where we are technologically augmented in, in our identity at least? Um, yeah, I think we are. Um, I think we don't acknowledge it. You know, there's a lot of nostalgia for ideas of the natural that we see in various, you know, political movements or um, rhetorical strategies. Um, but, yeah, I think, you know, if we think about the ways that almost everyone modifies their their bodies and their minds through, you know, uh, various forms of uh, chemicals, you know, um, how many cis women take the take the um, contraceptive pill, that is a hormone treatment, uh, cis men taking Viagra, um, people taking antidepressants or anti-anxiety or um, medication for ADHD, all kinds of, you know, chemical modifications of the body. These are, you know, um, changing the body and the self. Um, And these have sex and gendered implications. Um, But we also might want to think about the ways in which, you know, um, our social structures and indeed, you know, the very landscape we inhabit um, are all hybrids with non-human elements. And, I mean, not to mention, as you mentioned, the smartphone and uh, the... I guess, immersive nature of um, social media and Web 2.0 that we live partly as these online selves, um, data selves as they're sometimes called. Um, you know, we we do live sort of partly in a physical reality and partly in this online realm. And, you know, as Donna Haraway would maybe say, it's hard to draw a distinction between the two sometimes. Yeah, totally, you know, um, uh, datafication, you know, um, information, the, the presence of algorithms, um, these all have an effect on our day-to-day life quite profoundly, um, our interactions with one another online and the 
virtualization and commodification of our relationships with one another, including intimate relationships in you know the form of things like dating apps like uh, Tinder or Grindr. Um, these are ways in which you know ourselves are entangled with um, technological structures um, and specifically you know informational structures. Um, what does that mean when our sense of sexuality is interwoven with an app or with um, online pornography or even just media culture in general? There's quite a profound influence on, you know, things we think of as fundamental and natural, but that are, that are always also cultural. Well, uh, like you've said, and I agree with we don't talk about this as much as we probably should. In a way, it's um, unacknowledged and in a way maybe intentionally unacknowledged as tech companies like to fly under the radar a bit and people don't really like to acknowledge it. I guess one of the questions is, is this a good or a bad thing or um, how do we draw that distinction? Um, look, I, I think that's an interesting question. In terms of you know, the, the ethics or morality of it. Um, I think there's a danger in, in positing certain kinds of identities as, you know, um, avant-garde and the future or, you know, um, while seeing others as outdated. Um, I don't think that's useful. Um, but I also think, you know, um, we should ask questions about what does it mean to, you know, like I say, commodify... Um, quite important aspects of our lives. You know, there are social and political implications to, you know, the commodification of things like sexuality um, that I think we should, you know, think about. Um, I'm not sure that even a lot of the people who, you know, claim to be defending, you know, ideas of the human, ideas of, you know, the natural really want to, to reckon with the, the quite um, significant ways that our everyday lives have been changed. Um, it's not like we had a conversation about what it means that suddenly, oh, I have, a, have an internet connection with me every single moment of my day. Um, what that might mean in terms of my ability to concentrate, my ability to connect with the people around me. We haven't really had much of a um, conversation about that um, beyond, you know, like I said, a kind of either nostalgia for the natural, which entail entails rejecting everything, or a kind of full-throated embrace, as the transhumanists, um, you know, posit, um, that doesn't really think about, yeah, the ethical and um, political implications of these things. Well, we certainly seem to be getting... Um, more connected, um, whether it's through people's active choice or just the the momentum of these big companies rolling out new tech all the time. It, we that is the we only seem to be going in one direction here um, in the terms of becoming, I mean, more connected to machines or less. But are the two intention? Are there points where the intention? I think about like the immense growth of the big tech and the online world, people talk about the metaverse and then the, the issues of our physical world, right, and the damage that we're doing through, through climate change. And then something about, I guess, embodiment, we, we have 
different uh, mental health issues. People have been talked about it, a mental health epidemic and um, that maybe this is related to sort of living a kind of disembodied life. Do you think that there are points where the physical world and the the cyborg realm of the online world are intention? Look, I think... I, I don't think we can put the genie back in the bottle um, in terms of you know, technology or, you know, any of the kinds of modifications um, I have talked about. Um, What I think we don't have is a ruling principle, a kind of, you know, ethical element where we can make collective decisions. Um, Part of the issue, as far as I'm concerned, is that these have all been privatised decisions. You know, these are private corporations where we can, we can, you know, we have the rights of users, but we don't have the democratic rights to our own information. We don't have democratic rights to directing the policies, the ways in which these technologies are developed. So that, you know, I'm not sure we can throw away the smartphone or... Um, you know, um, get rid of the internet. You know, our economy is just too fundamentally um, reliant on these things. But I think we could, you know, nationalise them. I think we could um, really have some kind of democratic control beyond a profit motive. If all we have is a profit motive, um, then technology is not being developed democratically um, it's not being developed in, you know, in common. It doesn't have different um, ethical imperatives besides the ability to generate profit. And I think that's the problem. Do you think that, I guess, in this way, we need to catch up with post-human ideas about how technology shapes us and see the our online technologies as kind of fundamental social infrastructure the same way that we have nationalised schools or roads or um, hospitals, that technology also is something that's so fundamental to us as individuals and how we relate that that it should be nationalised. Do we need to catch up in our thinking? Yeah, I think we do. I think we need a sense of a new commons. I think just as you know, education and health are fundamental human rights. I think the um, ability to shape ourselves and to shape the world we live in should be um, distributed widely and be something we collectively uh, have an input into decision-making rather than um, small numbers of private corporations. Well, the big question, I guess, is how do we do that when these big tech companies are literally now the biggest corporations in the world? Um, Do you think there are developments around the world that are sort of trying to reclaim these spaces into, as as you say, a a new commons? Um, Look, I'm not a um, historian or um, political theorist of new movements, so I'm not sure I have a great answer for you in terms of what people are doing on that in that sense um i acknowledge that you know this is a very difficult thing to do um 
but I, I think I think the beginnings need to be at least you know from a very serious uh, conversation you know um, where we start to talk to you know politicians and begin to assemble social movements that are capable of um, calling for a change because that's that would take some time yeah I, I don't I don't see a lot of movement on that but I think it's something that um, would be good if it would occur yeah which I guess might bring us back to media and uh, mm. you you know you study media and you know this article that you wrote about the matrix it was an example of storytellers these movie makers the Wachowski sisters like exploring these ideas in a, a film um i guess we've talked about how these ideas aren't maybe recognized as much as they should be or in some ways i think are kind of actively repressed from talking about i think big tech doesn't really like conversations too much about it but i mean is there a role for storytellers here and um culture to try to be asking these questions Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I believe very strongly in the role of storytelling and making sense of our lives. Um, so, so I think you know, um, culture very much has has a really important role in terms of helping us think through what is already happening in our society, helping us imagine possible futures, and helping us imagine possible alternatives. You know, if you can't imagine an alternative, you can't live an alternative. So we very much do need to, you know, um, invest in storytellers, invest in the arts in order to, um, you know, create social change in that sense. Do you think, as a somebody who does media studies, are there good places where these discussions are happening i mean black mirror was something that really tried to have a a kind of social analysis of technology and what it was doing do you think that we're doing this well or um is there room to improve oh i think there's always room to improve um but you know yeah so i mean science fiction is one place where there's at least the potentiality for telling stories that um allow us to rethink our present and to rethink our future. In terms of, you know, other places where this is happening, I I think there's a kind of partial conversation that's happening where we have, you know, um, cultural conversations about climate change and cultural conversations about gender and cultural conversations about social inequality and capitalism and they're not necessarily all connected and we're not necessarily connecting the dots on these you know disparate ideas but i think you know i i I think it would be uh useful if we could you know um collectively start to try to connect the dots and you know um yeah um there's a science fiction genre called um solar punk where people are trying to imagine you know a post climate change world in which um uh there are new forms of economic organization new forms of ways of inhabiting the environment and you know if we don't imagine new ways of inhabiting the environment given the you know the rapid nature of climate change you know like as a species we're heading towards extinction um, frankly, 
you know, like the science fiction writer China Miele once said, we need to utopia as hard as we can in order to think our way out of the, the very serious issues that we have in terms of the way that humans appropriate and exploit the natural environment. Now, there's so many things to talk about, I, even on a media standpoint. Mm. Even just then, I was thinking about like superhero movies. Like when I was a kid, action movies didn't generally have superheroes as the stars, and now it's just so ubiquitous. And, it's, and I, then I was just thinking, that's even kind of like post-human that we sure. all our heroes are these, um, yeah, like cyborgs themselves. Oh, absolutely. They're humans that are overcoming the, the, the you know, usual limits of, of the human. Um, but, you know, I, I think um, at least a decent, decent proportion of superhero narratives are somewhat reactionary in terms of, you know, their interweaving with ideas of the nation and patriotism and things like that. But, you know, like any time we start to imagine alternatives to you know our current current reality there's at least a potential for liberation all right well i guess to finish off with then i mean looking at the future we've got donna haraway um very incisive kind of analysis of what was happening in technology before it even happened um i guess what for the future, for that kind of creating a better world um, and trying to harness the technology for good, what are the messages that we can take from this um, this text and the, I guess, philosophical body of work that comes around it? Look, I, I think I think if Haraway teaches us anything, it's that you know a desire for um, the organic or the whole. Um, for a nature that is somehow outside of culture is impossible. And the only way we can, you know, honestly and, you know, meaningfully move forward is in conjunction with technology, in consciously directing our interweavings between the natural and the cultural, in consciously changing how how we direct all kinds of human activity um, so that we can have a more ethical, a more liberatory way of organising the self, organising society and organising the environment. Thanks very much, Emily, for chatting with us. Not a problem. Thank you for having me. That was Emily McCaven there. Um, An interview in three parts talking about... The Cyborg Manifesto, post-humanism, technology, how do we imagine better futures in a world so mediated by technology, all kinds of topics. Um, If you just caught the end of it and um, think that the whole thing would be worth delving into, you can do that. Don't forget that. You get on the 4ZZZ website and you find the Paradigm Shift show page and there you can look through the last few weeks Um, Using the little arrows on there, you can see the songs that were played. There have been some uh, interesting ones this week, haven't they? (laughs) And and also, um, you can listen back to the show. Hit the little play icon there where it says Paradigm Shift. And you can get the last few shows. And also, you can get all other shows on 4ZZZ as well. Um, 
get amongst it. That's what I say. And of course, we have been talking a lot about media, I guess, and about how big tech companies, um, they are monopolistic in nature. They are um, amoral at best (laughs) when it comes to what they do with the uh, user's data that um, they're using. And we should be asking questions, is this the best we can do? How much of our lives when we're carrying these corporations around in our pockets, when we're communicating with all our friends, um, using them, our potential lovers, where we're getting ourselves around in the physical world, using the directions or the um, directories that we find on these things, how much do we want to give up to these companies who have no real commitment to public good or... um, a local community or anything like that. Those are questions that we've been trying to pose a bit today on the show and that I encourage you all to ask. And it may be that when you are thinking about that, that you think, hey, independent media that's accountable to a community like 4ZZZ, that's really good media that I should listen to and I should support, maybe get involved in. And so you can always subscribe um Either call up at 32521555 or get online to the Triple Z website and show a bit of love um, with some financial support. Back to that interview that we did, um, I think it's really important to talk about these things. I think um, some of these tech companies have colonized our lives by stealth, you know? We never really um, had a discussion or signed an agreement to give them the amount of intrusion and control that they have. Um, you know, it comes up in conversation all the time, the algorithms and the phones listening to you and all those kind of things. Well, um, it is worth thinking about whose interest this serves because quite possibly it's not yours and mine and whether there are things that we can do about it to try to organize ourselves Um, organize some level of resistance to big tech um, before it takes on even more power than it currently has. And so um, some of the media uh, storytelling that imagines different worlds that we're just talking about with Emily is a good start. I think reading critiques, um, finding organizations like Fight for the Future are one that are, you know, fighting for, I guess, online rights, online freedoms. And I think imagining a bit of life outside of this technology and what there are a lot of things made possible by using this technology but there are a lot of other things that are made impossible while we're connected to this technology and some of those things might be things that are are, could be really beneficial to us but they don't necessarily benefit the big tech companies who run these platforms and so worth imagining you know what kind of possibilities outside of the algorithms are there and I hope that leads you to all kinds of fruitful discoveries. That's about all we have time for anyway uh, this week on The Paradigm Shift. I will keep talking about this topic. I want to come back to it, and it's it's one that's hard to just do with little short grabs, like talking about an environmental campaign or something like that. It's really trying to delve into how do these things work and how do they affect our lives and what can we do about it. And so it might mean a few more longer interviews like this one today. See you next week.